Good morning. I'm reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 22. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for the good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God patiently waited, waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And, baptis and baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers made subject to him. We're continuing our series looking at uh, the first letter of Peter. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good story. If it's well told and the moment is right, I can so enter the world of a good book that the real world disappears for a while. And I find myself living the lives of the characters on the page in front of me. Uh, one of my favorite authors of recent years has been Bernard Cornwell. I, I finished uh, during lockdown reading his huge sharp series, which some of you may know from either the books or the TV series. Um, but before that, I, I read his uh, epic version of the life of Alfred the Great, which took me back into the world of the ninth century, depicting Alfred's battles to establish a kingdom for his descendants, um, which he wanted to be the kingdom of the English-speaking peoples, England, the English peoples, uh, in the face of wave after wave of Danish uh, Viking invasion. Uh, I certainly recommend these books if you like your historical fiction. Um, if you're interested in what I'm reading at the moment, I, I'm just in the middle of this series by Tim Wilcox, looking, uh, the first one was looking at the Siege of Malta, uh, and we're now in the middle of uh, the Huguenot uh, riots in Paris. But I don't think with the, uh, with, the, with the Alfred the Great stuff that it's too much of a spoiler. If I let on the fact that Alfred is ultimately successful in building his dream of a Christian Saxon kingdom for all the lands south of Scotland and east of Wales. We are, after all, living in England and not Daneland. However, I think it's also fair to say that whilst on the one hand Alfred was completely successful, on the other hand he failed completely. After all, many of the kings who succeeded him were not his direct descendants. Many had decidedly Danish names, from Canute to Harold to the Norman or Norsemen conquest. But while Alfred may not have secured his kingdom for his direct Saxon descendants, he did still secure a kingdom. Because he told the story 
of the idea of a nation of England. And he told it so compellingly that in time, those who originally opposed it came to be its strongest defenders. And this is the thing about stories. Stories have the power to shape the world. A story about a nation called England became the nation of England. Stories can possess people and motivate them to bring the world of the story into being in the world of reality. So I can tell you a story of one nation called England and how it came into being. I can tell you a story of Christian kings for a Christian country and then how that story took hold not just in England but across Europe, giving shape to the political landscape that echoes down to our own contemporary context of sovereign nation states across Europe, two great wars, political and economic union and ultimately Brexit. Stories shape the world we live in. A story told over a thousand years ago gives shape to the direct political and economic context that we're living through now with the cost of living crisis. Stories shape the world. All of this came into being because someone called Alfred was consumed by a story that he spoke into being. I'm aware I'm slightly simplifying for the professional historians amongst you, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch. One of the interesting areas of Alfred's story that Bernard Cornwell explores at some length is religious difference. The difference between the God of the Christians and the gods of the Danes. The Danish gods ask nothing of their followers other than that they keep them amused. There is nothing Thor wants more than a fine warrior fighting for glory, taking his reward in women and silver. Whereas Alfred's God, the Christian God, demands duty and laws and sacrifice to the higher ideals of the emergent holy nation. And the stories that are told about these gods, from the Norse pantheon to the Holy Trinity, give shape to the lives of those who follow them, the communities that they shape. And it is this world of competing stories divergent ideologies, conflicting dogmas that I think give us our way into our reading this morning from the first epistle of Peter. And specifically to the two verses which have been described by almost unanimous consent as one of the most difficult texts in the entire New Testament. I'm referring, of course, to 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 19 to 20. Let's hear them again now. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water and baptism, which this prefigured now saves you. It's weird, isn't it? Did you spot them when they were read for us in our reading a few minutes ago? Did they jump out with a large question mark hanging over them or perhaps an exclamation mark? Maybe if you have an Anglican background, you found yourself reflecting on the Apostles' Creed. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. You know that? Some of you will be mouthing it along with me, I'm sure. Or maybe you found yourself thinking of the medieval artwork depicting the ancient doctrine of the harrowing of hell. The belief that in the time between his crucifixion on Good Friday and the resurrection of Easter Sunday, Christ descended into the world of the dead, the underworld, to release from hell's fires the righteous women and men of the Old Testament. I remember a few years ago going to the Globe Theatre to see the Globe Mysteries. It was an updated take on the medieval mystery plays, which were so popular at the time of Shakespeare. Three hours, you have to stand at the Globe unless you're paying a lot of money, three hours of biblically inspired drama took the audience on a journey from creation and fall to the nativity and the massacre of the innocents to the crucifixion. And then as the climax to the mystery play, the harrowing of hell where Jesus faced down a variety of comedically evil demons to rescue Noah and Adam and Eve from their fiery fate. It's all very medieval. But the thing about the harrowing of hell is that it isn't really a biblical story at all. It has a strong tradition within Christianity, but if you look closely at the text, which we are looking at this morning, it's not, it's not obvious that this is what that text is saying. The grammar of our verses from 1 Peter would seem to imply that the resurrected Christ, sorry, would seem to imply that it is the resurrected Christ who makes a proclamation to the spirits who are in prison, not the crucified and unresurrected Christ. So I'm, I'm terribly sorry if your theology was shaped by medieval tradition, but it's not terribly well sustained within the biblical text. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, says one Peter. And it's, it's only when these verses are forced alongside a few other texts from elsewhere in the New Testament, which each have their own meaning in their own context. And I won't go into those this morning. It's only then that the doctrine of the harrowing of hell can start to be constructed. And one of the problems with this belief that Jesus made a journey to the depths of hell on Easter Saturday is that it seems to deny the truth of the crucifixion, which is that at, on the cross, Jesus died. We just sang it, on the cross as Jesus died. Rather, the medieval doctrine of the harrowing of hell implies that instead of dying, he just temporarily vacated his earthly body to pop down on some kind of celestial rescue mission, only to make it back just in time to re-inhabit his body at the resurrection. Well, I'm afraid, according to the early church fathers, this was deemed a heresy. Rather, and I think rather more helpfully, the point that the author of 1 Peter is making here is that the crucified and resurrected Jesus announces God's judgment 
on all those spiritual powers which are in rebellion against God and which cause evil in the world by working to release all those who are held captive in the hells of their own minds or circumstances. Some people find themselves deeply trapped in hell, don't they? Maybe you have been there. Maybe you are there. I think confining hell to an idea of where some people go when they die if they've been naughty does a great disservice to the hell that many people live through in their earthly lives. And what does it mean that the resurrected Christ proclaims good news and judgment to those who are trapped in hell, good news for those who are trapped and judgment on the systems that trap them. This, I think, is the point that the author of 1 Peter is trying to make here. It all becomes a bit clearer as the author moves on to speak about the story of Noah which he offers up as an allegory of the way Christ through the church rescues people from the waters of destruction that would otherwise overwhelm their lives. For the author of 1 Peter, Noah's Ark becomes a symbol for the gathered Christian community, a symbol of the community of God's people through whom salvation comes on the earth. And thus the story of Noah and his ark becomes a foundational story for those Christians who are called to be a faithful minority in a world that all too often seems hell-bent on its own destruction. And so we're back at the power of stories to shape and transform the world. Because the stories we tell about our God or gods will shape the communities that we construct in their service. And this is true whether that community is a church or a nation state. Thinking again about my Bernard Cornwell novels for a moment. For Alfred the Great, as for much of Christendom, the church and the state were synonymous. And the stories of God and the stories of country became fused. And in the Jewish foundational mythology of the Hebrew scriptures, the same thing happened within ancient Judaism. Their God became synonymous with their king and their country. The ancient Jews from the time of King David, certainly onwards, believed that their God and their king and their country were higher than all other gods and kings and countries of the competing nations around them. The idea of the nation state under God actually predates Alfred's dream. It goes right back a couple of thousand years before that to what the ancient Jews constructed under King David and his descendants. And so the, the ancient Israelites told their own stories to legitimate their nation under God, and consequently to try and deconstruct the competing stories told by the nations surrounding them. It's well known that many cultures, I'll give you an example, well known that many cultures have a flood narrative. 
And certainly the Babylonians who conquered Israel in the seventh century before Christ, carrying off the scribes and the priests and the elite of Israel into exile in Babylon, they had a flood story. And actually you can read it if you go to the British Museum, just around the corner from where we are this morning. And I'd encourage you to do this if you've not seen it, pop along to the British Museum and take a look at the Babylonian flood narrative. It tells a story called the Gilgamesh epic, which is itself a retelling of an earlier flood narrative called the Epic of Atrahasis. And in this Babylonian flood story, the great gods of ancient Babylon become angry and decide in their anger to flood the earth, to kill all the people who are living there. But one of their gods rebels and he kind of sneaks behind their back and, and goes to talk to a human being called Utnapishtim. And he says to Utnapishtim that you should, he should build a boat to keep living things alive on the earth. And so Utnapishtim builds the boat. And sure enough, the rains and the floods come in the Babylonian story. And they do destroy all living things. And the flood is so severe that even the gods are shocked and become afraid at what they have unleashed upon the earth. And they retreat up to the heavens, regretting their decision to unleash such violence. But meanwhile... Utnapishtim's little boat floats above the flood and eventually lodges on a mountain and he sends out a dove and then a swallow to see if there's any dry land but they, they come back to him and then he sends out a raven which finds land to live on and doesn't come back and so Utnapishtim realizes that the flood is receding and Utnapishtim then lets out the animals and the livestock and sacrifices a sheep and the gods above smell the smoke of the sacrifice and realizing there are still people alive on the earth, despite all of their destruction, they come down to have a look. And the chief god, Yah, is furious because he still wants all living things destroyed. And the ancient Babylonian gods have this massive discussion and argument about the proportionality of the flood as a punishment for human depravity. And in the end, Utnapishtim and his wife are made into gods themselves. That is an ancient Babylonian flood story, and you can read it on the flood narrative tablet if you were find yourself speaking ancient Akkadian. Um, you can see, can't you, how this story lies behind the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis was written in Babylon during the time of the Jewish exile. And the, the ancient Jews heard this Babylonian flood story and they thought, we like that story, but they're telling it about their gods. We're going to tell it about our gods. And what is significant about the Noah version of the flood story is not whether it actually happened. That is always the least interesting question to ask about these ancient mythological stories. The interesting question is why this story is told the way it is. And what it tells us about the gods that these ancient Jews in exile in Babylon, what it tells us about the gods that they believed in. And what we discover was that they believed in a different kind of God to the gods of the Babylonians. The Jewish God was not a violent, and capricious God, hell-bent on destruction and capable of overkill, as the Babylonian gods were. And so this story that the Jews retell, that becomes the story of Noah and Noah's flood, 
asks the question of whether humankind survives because someone betrays the will of the supreme God to rescue a fortunate human being. And the answer it gives is no, of course not. The flood, according to Genesis, is presented as an entirely proportionate and appropriate response to the sinfulness of humans on the earth. Now, I have my problems with that. I, I have a theological problem with that, but that's what that, that's what that story does. It is saying that God's judgment in that story is proportionate to the level of sin on the earth. It is not overkill. The Babylonian story was total overkill. The Jews were wanting to say, no, God doesn't do overkill. And similarly, Noah in the Jewish story survives with his family because he is righteous and deserving of God's mercy. Not because one of the gods betrays the other gods and has a quick word. And so we have to hear the Noah story against the background of the Babylonian flood story. And we have to realize that it is told to undermine, to deconstruct the view that the gods are capricious and given to random acts of violence. The God of the Jews may not yet be the all-loving, non-violent deity that we may want to say that we believe in. But, says the Noah story, this God is at least just and proportionate, as opposed to unjust and disproportionate. And the twist at the end hints at further theological development still to come in the ongoing Jewish quest to fathom the nature of God, as God's shining warrior bow is placed across the heavens after the rain, as a symbol of God's commitment to never again destroy all life on the surface of the earth. And that, of course, is the rainbow. And by this way of understanding it, the Noah story is a bit like Alfred's story of England, with which I began. It's a story told to define a culture, a story that explores the nature of what it is to be the people chosen and saved by God from the waters of chaos that would otherwise overwhelm the world. It's a story that far transcends its original historical context, such that people living thousands of years after it was first told in lands never heard of by its author can still hear that story and proclaim that it speaks to them of the God that they worship. And part of this appropriation of the Noah story into the Christian tradition, and so down to us, happens through its use in these confusing verses from 1 Peter that we have been reading this morning. In a nutshell, what I'm suggesting is going on here is that in 1 Peter, we find a repeat of what happened in Babylon. So in Babylon, the Jews heard and then deconstructed the Babylonian story of the flood and rewrote it as the Noah story. And in 1 Peter, we find a Christian deconstruction of the Noah story. You see, for the author of 1 Peter, the Jews in Babylon hadn't gone far enough in their theological reworking of the Babylonian flood narrative. And this was, of course, as far as the author of 1 Peter is concerned, is because the ancient Jews had not known the story of God as it came to be revealed in the person of Jesus. 
They hadn't known the story of salvation enacted in baptism. They hadn't known the story of God made flesh in the person of Jesus. They hadn't known the story of a God who dies on a cross and defeats death to lead his people through death to eternal life. And so one Peter retells the story of Noah, casting it as an allegory of the story of Jesus. And in so doing, he takes the deconstruction of the pagan gods of war and violence to the next level. One Peter tells his readers that the forces of evil that would overwhelm all life are now robbed of their power. Because life continues to reassert itself through the faithful people of God who survive the waters of the flood by passing through them. The theological point here is that those who die with Christ in the waters of baptism are also raised with Christ to new life. The waters do not overwhelm them and they rise from the depths to bear living witness to the Christ story of life from death. Picture the baptisms we've done here. Some of you have seen them. The baptismal candidate is there. I hold them, helped by somebody else to make sure I don't injure my back. And we plunge them down into the water, into the grave, under the ground, into the waters of chaos. And then we lift them up and they are raised to new life, up from the grave. He rose again. It's a song we sang earlier. And what one Peter is suggesting is that in essence, we think of ourselves, the people of God, as the ark from the Noah story, rising above the waters that threaten to drown us, to keep alive the story of a God of love who is not like the gods of vengeance, violence, and overkill. And if you think the gods of vengeance, violence, and overkill only existed in ancient Babylon, then you are mistaken. They are still alive in our world too. They're rampant in Ukraine at the moment and so many other places where war and violence write the script of the story that humans have to live by. Those gods are not gone and just as the ancient Jews in Babylon said we reject those gods and we are going to tell that story differently and just as 1 Peter said we reject those gods and in Jesus we have a new and hopeful story to tell the earth of a different and better way of living and being human so also with us. We each of us live by defining stories that we inherit from our culture and context. We construct our lives from the foundational myths told to us from our earliest years. We are the only species on this planet that creates legal fictions, stories that carry force in the real world. We are the only species on this planet to have a concept of sin. We are the only species to be able to articulate belief in God. I think of the wren singing in the poem. I'm sure that is a prayer, but it is a prayer of joy at being alive. I think it is only humans that can ponder the concept of death. We are the only species to take the transcendent and clothe it in words until it takes form in our midst as words and perhaps the word become flesh. 
And so we spin our stories and then we live by them and we live them into being. And the only question we have to address really then is which story will we live by? Which story will you live by? One Peter invites us to live by the story of Christ, to live by the story of the one who goes into the grave to redeem death and who offers us life in the face of the deluge of pain and suffering that would otherwise overwhelm all hope from the face of the earth. 1 Peter offers us a comprehensive deconstruction of the mythological view of a wrathful God who punishes have you been brought up to believe in God, but a God who punishes you for your sin? Did you notice we changed the words a bit naughtily on that hymn we sung earlier? As it is written, it reads, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I got a theological problem with that, and so I think with the author of 1 Peter, which is why we sang on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. 1 Peter challenges all those who would still construct life and faith on the basis of beliefs and stories rooted in violence and vengeance. There is no place in this view of the world for the violent gods of the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic. There is no place in this view of the world for the Crusades of Christendom. Rather, 1 Peter's reworking of Noah's stories, reworking of the Babylonian flood narrative, if you see what I mean, directly challenges all forms of religious extremism which would seek violence as the answer. The notion of a wrathful God is transformed into the concept of a suffering God who deals with human sin not by wiping out the sinful, but by forgiving the sinful. So how do we live this story into being? How do we incarnate the story of Jesus in our lives and in our community and communities? Well, which stories, I wonder, still define our existence in this world, but which desperately need deconstructing through a faithful retelling of the redeeming stories of Jesus? For some of us, these will be intensely personal stories where we find ourselves swamped by the floods of guilt, overwhelmed by worthlessness or drowning in depression. Maybe these are the chaotic waters of the flood for us. Do you ever find yourself repeating the mantra, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm an idiot, everyone hates me? Little insight into my inner world there. These defining stories are not the story that we are invited to inhabit in Christ, who has overcome the darkness that would overwhelm us, who helps us to rise above the floods that would drown us. For some of us, these stories we live by are stories of anger and retribution as we seek meaning and justice for the wrongs that have been done to us. I'm thinking of the teenager who cannot control their temper, who punches out at people and things because they have taken deep within them a narrative of hatred, 
seeking meaning and justice for the wrongs done to them. I get it, I really do, but this is not the story we are invited to inhabit either. For some of us, our stories get written in the wider world of politics and policies. As we seek to work out which vision of our common life we want to seek and see spoken into being in our midst. Do we want a national narrative built on violence and retribution? Is this the God that we want to worship? Would you press the nuclear button if someone entrusted it to you? Which story we live by will affect every area of our lives and rewriting that script can be tough. For me, it took a year of weekly psychotherapy. How we see ourselves, how we see others, who we vote for, all of these are an outworking of the stories we live by. And the invitation of one Peter is to make our story, the story of Jesus Christ, who deconstructs all these other stories of violence and retribution and who rescues all those who are imprisoned in their spirits in living hells that humans are so good at making for themselves. One Peter invites us to inhabit a story which brings life with there is death, which tells of one who ultimately has authority over all principalities and powers. And the good news is that we don't have to do this alone. We are invited to find our place in the community of faith. Our story is rewritten here this morning in this place. We are the ark of safety that can carry those who would otherwise be overwhelmed because we are called to watch over one another. And in the name of Christ, we are called to offer salvation to those who are drowning. And ultimately, I believe this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God. Uh, we'll take just a few moments just to reflect uh, in silence on what Simon has shared with us. And uh, now can I ask uh, Philip, Andrea and Liz to come forward, please, to be our panellists this morning. Okay, all right. So would anybody uh, like to begin just by sharing some thoughts or responses that they find within their hearts after uh, hearing what Simon shared with us this morning. I will pick then. Andrea, ladies first, thank you. Sure. Um, yeah, I just need to hold it like, yeah, okay. Um, I think it's interesting because ever since I came to Bloomsbury, I kept hearing about um, how the Bible is a collection of stories and how people are have tried to wrestle with who God is. And um, I guess what this morning reminded me of is that 
um, is how healthy that way of looking at the scripture is um, and not pretending that other stories don't exist because we know they exist. Like I was growing up and reading about Gilgamesh at school or, and then I had to pretend I didn't hear about that because it wasn't Christian. Um, so I think that's a way of like not denying the other things exist and we can have a stronger faith if we choose to. Um, I, uh, I mean, obviously, I think in what's been said, there's a lot of good news. So that's great. And I, I was kind of, you know, I, I was jotting down the, the good news that, um, that the forces of evil are robbed of all their power and that, um, that there's freedom from hell and that hell can be, whether that be struggling with mental health issues or, or whatever that hell be. Um, but I was also struck, and maybe it's because of the story of, of Noah and uh, thinking about the rainbow, and I love rainbows. So, um, and recently um, going down and uh, seeing Pride in, in London and um, standing in front of, as a small group of us do each year, um, the, the Christians that are holding placards telling people that they're going to hell because they're at Pride. And it, it also made me think that in this, um, in this kind of idea that, that stories can shape the world um, and they can shape the way we see ourselves, um, it's also the idea that they can, the stories that we tell can put people in hell um, and stories that the church tell can put people in hell. And, um, and that kind of made me, there was also the, the, the bit where it, it, Simon was saying that it's good news and judgment. And, I think when we hear that, we're like, well, obviously that's judgment against all the evil and all of that. But I think that sometimes as a church, we need to recognize, uh, and as the Christian faith, we need to recognize that there is judgment for us as well. And that judgment might be that the stories that we're telling are putting people in hell and are, are framing other people's stories that cause them to be in hell for the rest of their lives. Um, and so... So I think for us, that just kind of made me think that there's a responsibility. There's a responsibility of getting to know Jesus better and what that means. And, and also there's a responsibility of what we say and how we say it. And there's a responsibility of, therefore, how we act to people. Um, and at the end, I just wrote down what Simon said. It, it's telling the story differently. And perhaps our responsibility here at, at Bloomsbury, thinking about those signs that I saw at Pride. It's telling the story differently. It's giving a new hopeful story. Um, it's being that arc of safety. So that's what the good news is. Oh, what a perplexing text that is. Isn't this difficult? I, mean, I couldn't believe it um, <laughs> to be asked to a panel to talk on this sort of thing. Um, very, very, very perplexing, very perplexing. Um, I was thinking of the words of the thief on the cross, today thou wilt be with me in paradise. And in other words, that heaven was, or a concept of heaven was imminent and was there. And it reminded me of somebody who was talking today about a great evangelical icon, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I'm sure lots of you will have heard of at least. Um, and as he was dying, he didn't want any more palliative care. And he said, oh, no, stop it all, stop it all. Uh, don't hold me back from the glory. 
And I'm sort of trying to think, you know, scripture seems I mean, obviously not inconsistent, but we know so little. It gives only clues about different things. Um, for example, about the second coming. Um, I remember a preacher in Wales who was very popular for his preaching on the second coming and churches all over the place were asking him to come and do that. But the Bible talks about millenarianism a thousand years, possibly before Christ's return, a thousand years after. What does that mean? And one of the great uh, glories, of course, of the Renaissance and the Reformation was the dissemination of scripture. But of course, in the wrong hands, um, and of course, lots of the early Baptists were called rude mechanicals and um, fifth monarchists and these sort of people who believed in the end of the world um, then. Of course, it didn't happen. Um, some groups today, cults, still believe in the end of the world, have been pr projecting that from the beginning of, well, say, the last century. Um, and I wonder how much we're supposed to know. I mean, I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness this week who said to me, well, you know, if you're not one of the 144,000, look out. Um, this is the sort of thing we have words like apocalypse, Armageddon, and I think sometimes we just do not know enough. It's not that there's a contradiction or something, but we don't know enough. And I think we can be perhaps too intrusive like some of these other rude mechanicals of clinging on to isolated bits of scripture without seeing the whole, the whole pattern. Because obviously we ought really simply to be able to proclaim with the apostle, my Lord and my God. And that is the recognition, I think. Um, uh, thank you to Andrea and Liz and to Philip for sharing. Uh, I suppose I had two very quick thoughts on uh, what Simon shared this morning. I was challenged again by what do I presently believe about God that is actually erroneous or damaging or limiting in some way. Uh, if we believe that there's a pro progressive revelation of the nature and character of God throughout scripture, if the text in Peter was rewriting the known narrative, then what do, what do we presently believe about God that uh, may not be completely setting us free? And I'm conscious that the truth sets us free and, and therefore this idea of living making our narrative also the narrative of the resurrected Christ, I think has to be something that we are long for, uh, whereby the truth of Christ sets us free from believing the lies, the untruths, the falsehoods that entrap us and bring us into hell. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Thank you, panelists. And may the God who binds up the brokenhearted, who proclaims freedom to the captive, and promises justice to all who mourn its loss. Bless you with beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness in place of grief, and instead of your spirit of despair, a garment of unending praise. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.